verses 26 through 31. This is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, holy word. Let us hear it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Amen. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to our hearing. You may be seated. Well, we've seen three uh, very sober warning passages already as we have made our way to this point in the book of Hebrews, and now we see another. We come to this thunderous warning against the same thing that the writer has warned against in the past. It's the same warning against falling away from faith in Christ. This is a concern that drove this writer throughout uh, this letter or sermon, as some think it was. He's warning people who have professed faith in Christ, who have professed to be believers in Jesus and in the gospel of God's saving grace, but who had now been tempted to turn away from that salvation, to turn away in unbelief, to do that deliberately. To do that is to reject Christ, to reject God, to reject the only way of salvation, and there is no other. And it is is to be left, as the writer says here, with nothing but this fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries. So he's calling his readers to a persevering faith. But he also wants them to see the gravity, the very serious gravity of this situation that they were in, with this temptation that they were facing. There are terrible consequences for all who reject God's wonderful offer of full and free saving grace through faith in his Son. Think about the wonder of this offer. God gives heaven. He gives eternal life. 
He gives a life in union with Him and in His love. He gives it as a gift, a wonderful gift entirely, apart from our works. It is accomplished, uh, this redemption, through Christ and His atonement that He made, through His death. It's altogether a gift that is offered to us. And we are summoned, we are called to receive this glorious gift and to be grateful for it. But if the gift is rejected, the consequences, we're told, will be literal, eternal hell. He writes again in verses 26 and 27, If we go on sinning, Deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. The word truth here, the knowledge of the truth, it refers to the gospel, the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the absolute truth that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. And Paul says, that is a trustworthy statement and deserving of full acceptance. And these people had accepted it. They had accepted it as true and trustworthy. This Christian teaching of what God had done for sinners, what he'd done in Christ for the worst of sinners. But after coming to that knowledge of Christ, if they would now turn back, turn away from it, and take up again that attitude of rejecting Christ, rejecting the gospel, and the writer's saying, there's no other way of salvation. There's no other way of having their sins atoned for. There's no other sacrifice, no other substitute. They will bear their own sins. That apostasy from Christ is what the writer means here in verse 26 when he says, if we go on sinning. He's not just talking about any sin. Uh, He's not talking about uh, the, the, the struggle that we all continue to have as believers, we do still sin, as 1 John 1 makes very clear in many other scriptures. He's not just talking about um, uh, our besetting sins that we still struggle with. He's talking about apostasy. John Calvin says, the apostle is describing not those who fall into any kind of sin, but those who forsake the church, and separate themselves from Christ. Forsaking Christ and forsaking Christ's people. Calvin continues, there's a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of the kind which makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ. That's what the writer's talking about here, that desertion of Christ and the church and the gospel of grace. He's already talked about it again back in uh, chapter 6. This is the same sin described there. 
in such a vivid way where he says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So the writer's talking about deliberate, decisive, willful rejecting of Christ. Departure from the faith, departure from the church, going back, in this case, to relying on uh, the Jewish sacrificial system again, which, of course, the writers labored to tell us is completely useless and powerful to save anyone. And in fact, it pointed to Jesus Christ as the one true sacrifice. They were rejecting the one that that whole Old Testament system pointed forward to. So apart from Jesus, who is that one and only sacrifice that can put away our sins, there's no hope of heaven. There's no hope beyond this life. There's only a sure expectation of hell. The writer wants us to be clear on that. And he's making clear the reality of hell here in these words he uses. And we need that to be made clear to us, don't we? Because it's not something we want to think about. People, for the most part, want to deny hell. It is widely denied and always has been. But it is nonetheless very clearly taught all the way through God's inspired word in Scripture. And yet, that doesn't keep people from trying to deny it. The unbeliever certainly denies it, but even those who call themselves Christians, even those who say that they're evangelical Christians, try to deny it in one way or another. Others say that, well, yes, God will judge the wicked. He will judge the unbeliever, but he's going to totally destroy them. He's going to annihilate them. And they won't go on existing anymore. They'll just cease to exist, and that will be their judgment. Sadly, one of my uh, really favorite writers and commentators John Stott even embraced this view late in his life. He's a fantastic writer. Some of his, his works are so, so good. The Cross of Christ. Some of his commentaries are just so, so good and concise in the way that he gets at the meaning of God's word. Uh, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater with him. But this view, he was wrong. I think he made an emotional decision near the end of his life to begin thinking this way. But many do. You know, he found the thought of eternal punishment in hell unbearable. 
And it is unbearable. We don't want to think about this. People suppress the knowledge of this so they don't have to think about it. They're in denial of it. But we shouldn't do that. We as believers, certainly we can't let our emotions get the best of us and let our emotions determine what we're going to believe. Just because this is a horrible reality, a fearful doctrine, we have to let God's word say what it says and we need to let it teach us what to believe. We need to think God's thoughts. And our passage today here helps us to do that. Verse 27 is very clear. There will be a judgment. Look at the words he uses. A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Those who have rejected Christ will face this terrible future. Whether they're aware of it or not, whether they try to deny it or not. And yes, people hate this teaching that God will judge and condemn sinners. They only want to hear about a God of love. They want that love to cancel out God's justice and his wrath. Well, thankfully, it's not one or the other. We can't play that, that game, the false dichotomy game. We're going to pick love, a God of love, over the God of wrath. Don't do that. That's a, that's a heresy that's been... Uh, replayed over and over throughout church history. People try to do that. It's not the truth of the true God. God is a God of love, and he is also a God of perfect justice. And he will and must display his wrath in the judgment of sin. In one way or another, he needs to judge sin. He would not be a God of love if he was not also a God of wrath toward evil. And we could never really understand his love apart from seeing his wrath displayed toward sin when we see that at the cross. That's what the cross was all about. He was pouring out his holy wrath toward sin upon his own son. He loved us so much that he was willing to pour his wrath upon another, upon his own son. J.A. Packer writes about God's love and his wrath and how they are in perfect harmony. He writes, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. Instead, it is a right, necessary reaction to objective moral evil. It's a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry when anger is called for. And would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world, would he be perfect? No, surely not. 
But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. This is a righteous anger, a a truly perfect righteous anger. The right reaction of moral perfection in the Creator toward moral evil and perversity in His creature. So it would be morally wrong for God not to show his wrath. And so we can be assured that he will. He has shown it by pouring it out on his son, and he will show it again toward all those who reject his son. For them, the writer tells us here, There is a hell, and its fire will never burn out. That's the picture we get in Scripture. It is eternal punishment that will be a reality for all who are lost. But the good news is that God's Son already suffered the eternal weight of God's wrath for us in the place of sinners who trust in him. God's great love moved him to do this, to send his son to bear that wrath for us. If there's anything you think about Jesus and what he came to do, it was that. And he did that. He bore God's wrath so that we could be spared from that. And so that we instead could have that great exchange. He takes God's wrath and we are freely given God's grace and love forever. Why would you ever want to turn away from that? Why would you ever turn away from such a good and gracious, loving God who takes the full penalty of all your sins, all that you deserve, and he bears it himself in the person of his Son? Then in verses 28 and 29, the the writer keeps pressing his point here about the judgment um, that awaits those who reject Christ. And he argues from the lesser to the greater. And in verse 28, we see the lesser, a lesser offense um, that um, nonetheless deserved a very severe judgment. This is the lesser offense in verse 28. He speaks of the law of Moses. He writes, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's what happened if an Israelite rejected the law of Moses. Very serious consequences. Very swift. To reject the law was to reject God. To reject his authority. If a person did that, And it was proven. It had to be proven. There's a high standard of proof here. Two or three witnesses. You can just have one. But if there were two or three witnesses that established this matter, that person was executed. That penalty was carried out. There were no appeals, on and on, and life sentences. No. God's justice demanded that. 
And that's just the lesser offense, though, that the, that the writer is using here to make his point. The far greater offense is rejecting Christ. The writer says, if you think that penalty was serious and severe for rejecting the law of Moses, how much worse a punishment will be deserved for the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and profaned the blood of his covenant and outraged the spirit of grace. And the writer kind of just leaves us hanging there to think about it, make the connection. How much worse that penalty should be. It should be worse. Why? Because the gospel and the new covenant is so much greater compared to the old. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, is so much greater than Moses. So the punishment must be so much more severe to commit apostasy from Christ. And it is. It is. I want to say again, the writer is not talking about regenerated Christians losing their salvation. An apostate is someone who looked the part very much for a time, but who was not really saved. He was a professing Christian. Probably fooled many people. Fooled the elders of the church. Grasped the teaching of the gospel, at least in an intellectual way. But later he repudiated Christ. He showed, shows ultimately, the apostate does, that he was never really alive in Christ. Never really made alive by the Spirit of God, born from above. Because those who are born from above, they don't lose that. What the writer's saying here is that people are held accountable for the light that they have received. And this person received serious light. This person came to know in some kind of a a, a rather full way, uh, he came to know about the grace of God in Christ. He came to know the, the truth of what Jesus Christ did for sinners. And he, he seemed to embrace that truth. Embraced the love of God in Christ. Confessed it. Confessed Christ as his Lord and Savior. And presumably he was baptized and, and received the Lord's Supper as well. This is someone who's been part of the community of God's people, and then rejects Christ, rejects his grace and his love. That is described here as trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraging the spirit of grace. Those are some very descriptive phrases. So if a person who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy, what will become of the person who knowingly rejects the wonderful grace of God in Christ? 
And he tells us fearful expectation of judgment. Raging fire. They will die in their sins. And it's fair to say it would have been better for them had they never heard the gospel rather than to embrace it and then throw Christ away like so much garbage. They will be held accountable for the greater light that they've received. Listen, we are all worthy of eternal punishment in hell. I don't know about you, but the older I get... (laughs) The longer I go in this life as a Christian, I feel it more and more. Man, Lord, I deserve hell. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think that way. I know my sin. I hate it more and more. And I know that God would have been absolutely right to to throw me in hell a long time ago. We should all feel that way about ourselves. We are wretched sinners. I think we can confess that as well as regenerated sinners. That wretchedness is still there. That old sin nature is, is still there within us. It's not uh, staying in the background, is it? We are saved completely by absolutely undeserved grace. It's totally despite ourselves. And if we realize that about ourselves, we should also realize that apostasy deserves hell. It certainly deserves God's judgment. A person who understood God's amazing grace and seemed to have tasted of it and knew better, and yet still turned away from Christ and his saving work, that is deserving of eternal punishment in hell. And Maybe you've got faces of people from your life in the past who come to mind. I know I do. My heart breaks for them. I pray that the Lord will grant them repentance one day and bring them to himself. And moving on in verse 29, we see apostasy. I just want to um, note that uh, this apostasy involves a rejection of three things. Uh, Commentators have pointed out three things here in this verse that are being highlighted. First of all, the trampling underfoot of the Son of God. That speaks of the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God rejecting him, the person of Christ. And the image here, trampling underfoot, that's like a picture of stomping with your feet on Jesus Christ, God's Son, and grinding his face in the dirt. How much more vivid could you get? That is certainly not something that anyone would want to do to God. God the Son, but that's what is being done in apostasy. The next phrase speaks of rejecting his work, Christ's finished saving work. They profaned the blood of the covenant. 
Whenever we speak of the blood of Christ, we're talking about the death of Christ. His work was to die, to come and die for sinners, to atone for us. And yet, the picture here is is that of treating the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, as a worthless thing. But his blood is not worthless. His blood is of infinite value. His death is of infinite value. It's the only death that atones for sin. It's the only way of having your conscience cleansed as a sinner. Your sins forgiven uh, to the very heart of your conscience being washed pure. It's the precious lifeblood of God's Son that was poured out for his friends. His life was of infinite value. A perfect, holy, obedient person lived a life of flawless obedience. And he laid down that life for us. To have professed faith in that death of Christ, but then turn and treat it as nothing. Worthless. That is monstrous treason. And thirdly, the the apostate has outraged the Spirit of grace. Outraged the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. To reject Christ is to reject the person and work of the Holy Spirit as well. This seems to be the unforgivable sin that uh, is spoken of in the Scriptures. It's the willful repudiation of the gospel. And that's the Spirit's work, is to testify to Jesus Christ and to set him before us. There was this willful repudiation of the gospel by those who heard it and understood its meaning. That's the work of the Spirit they're rejecting. And notice this word here, outraged. Your people, everybody's outraged about something all the time now. This is real outrage. It can also mean insulted. Some of your translations will, will say they've insulted the spirit of grace. And note also he's called the spirit of grace. Isn't that beautiful? God's Holy Spirit graciously working opening eyes, granting illumination, granting understanding of the marvelous, unmerited, saving grace of God. That's why he's called the Spirit of Grace. The Holy Spirit had come and ministered to this person who's called an apostate. He's ministered convicting of sin, He's borne witness to the truth of Jesus Christ and his saving work for sinners. But in the end, that person rejected the Spirit and his work of grace. That truly is an insult and an outrage. 
You read some people when they talk about hell and write about it and how uh, morally repugnant it is to them. They talk about that as an outrage, this doctrine of hell and of God's judgment. The idea that God would judge sinners and send them to hell forever. But no, that's no outrage. That's just completely just and right in light of who God is and how wicked we are. The true outrage is that this wonderful, loving God has sent his son into the world to save miserable, condemned, undeserving sinners by dying under God's wrath for us. And yet people despise and reject that gift. That is the outrage. The true outrage. Well, then verses 30 and 31 here close the passage and drive home the point on uh, these warnings. He writes, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And then that closing verse that is so sobering. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Writer David McWilliams tells a story that illustrates the seriousness, the deadly seriousness of God's impending judgment and the need for us to flee from that judgment. He writes, on a very foggy night, and maybe you've heard this uh, story, I think it's an illustration that others have used, a very foggy night, Out at sea, a captain of a large ship was trying to navigate his vessel through the dense fog. And he saw ahead a large object, straight ahead. He was on a crash course with it. He knew it must be another ship. So he got on the radio and signaled to it and said, Change your course 10 degrees west. And the reply came back quickly. Change your course 10 degrees east. The captain of the ship felt insulted and signaled again angrily. He said, I am a captain and I've been on the seas for 35 years. Change your course 10 degrees west. And the reply came back. I am a seaman fourth class. Change your course 10 degrees east. This infuriated the captain, who knew that he was about to crash and that it was imminent. And so he signaled again, I am a 50,000-ton freighter. Change your course 10 degrees west now. And the reply came back one last time and said, I am a lighthouse. Change your course 10 degrees east now. We're a lot like that, Captain. We sinners. Cruising along in our lives, 
foolishly thinking that we don't have to change course for God. We think God will change course for us, but he won't. He can't. He's not like a ship on the seas that can move and change. He's a fixed object that never changes. And we will either adjust course to who he is and what he has done for us, and then we will be saved, or we will crash into the Almighty and be destroyed. And the writer of Hebrews is giving us that kind of warning. Those who reject this warning will fall into the hands of the living God. And that will be a fearful and dreadful thing indeed. God will repay. He will visit his vengeance upon sinners. So the message for us all is to turn Turn to Christ. If you've already done that, praise the Lord. Then you hold fast to Christ. That's the message of the writer here all through this book. Hold fast, and your anchor will hold you. But if you haven't trusted in Christ personally, if you're not following him now as your Lord, you need to know that you're on a collision course for destruction. God says to you, turn, turn to my son now and be saved. He has already borne that judgment and that wrath that we deserve on the cross. He fell into the hands of the living God for us so that we don't have to. He's done that for every sinner who believes every sinner who trusts in him. So trust in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great and glorious son and this wonderful redemption that we have in him and only in him. We confess that we are as wicked and deserving of judgment as anyone. We we deserve to suffer your wrath forever uh, because of what we are uh, as sinners and rebels against you. But we are so glad that you have saved us. You have given us uh, something so much better than what our sins deserved. We thank you for sending your dear son. Thank you for giving us the spirit of grace who has changed our course. We, we couldn't even do that ourselves. We needed your spirit to make us alive in Christ, to unite us to him, to renew our minds. And, and uh, we, we thank you so much for the spirit. And all this is a result of your love and your grace that you have poured out and lavished upon us, as Paul says. We pray, Lord, that you'd uphold us. Uh, we realize that we're, we're also prone to drift, prone to wander and drift away if you don't keep us. So we look to you to keep us, keep us in your love. We pray that you draw many more to your son through the word of your grace in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.